You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. Or should I say good afternoon? My name is Åsa Lappegolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And when we began putting together this year's program for the Saladin Days, focusing on prison literature, it soon became apparent that most of the stories are written by and about men. But we know that men are not the only ones subjected to torture and inhumane treatment in prison and in conflict situations. And while women are by no means the only victims of sexual violence, just this week there was a gruesome report of the frequency of rapes in Alabama's men's prisons in the US. But could it be that the sexual violence that many women are subjected to makes it more difficult for them to tell their stories? One Syrian woman who told her story anonymously to the NGO Lawyers and Doctors for Human Rights told of how she was arrested and then tied down and raped below a picture of Syria's President Assad. How can the perpetrators for such actions be held responsible for their crimes? Several women who have survived brutal imprisonment in Syria are part of lawsuit initiatives against the current government with help from the legal organization Guernica 37. Ibrahim Olabi is a pupil barrister at Guernica 37 as well as the director of the Syrian Legal Development Program. And he was in Syria in 2017 during the chemical attack. We are honored to have him give this year's Saladin lecture. Please give him a warm welcome. My home was invaded in December. One security officer told me to go to my room and he followed me in. He began insulting me and telling me he would do to me and that I would never be clean again. I screamed, but no one came. The officer took two girls, held their faces down on the desk and raped them in turn. The girls tried to resist, but there was nothing they could do. The officer then told me, you see what I'm doing to them? I will do this to your wife and to your daughter. Ladies and gentlemen, what I just read to you was a a couple of quotes that I managed myself to read and quote, from a very long document based on 400 and more than 450 interviews with victims, witnesses, by the United Nations itself, by the UN Commission of Inquiry on Syria. They titled it, I Lost My Dignity. I will be referring back to, to the report in due course. But why? Why is the quote that I just mentioned, or the two quotes, the quotes that you just mentioned, the quotes that are on the paper, the the advertisement that you've heard about, I think, yesterday, and you will hear about again tomorrow, why are they happening? This isn't part of a gruesome story or a movie. It has happened, it's happening, and if no action is taken, it will continue to happen. So where did this all start? 
In 2011, Syria had a beautiful uprising. Dare I say it's beautiful, given all what happened. But yes, it is beautiful. People marched in the streets, men, women, children, families, asking for basic rights, freedom, and dignity. Women, during those marches, were a cornerstone. In fact, they remained a cornerstone for all the uprising until this very day. They marched on the streets, side by side. When protesters were attacked, they were the media activists that filmed what happened and reported it to the world. When the protesters were injured, women were the nurses, the doctors, that treated those who dared to ask for their rights. And when civilians were killed and targeted, it was women who mourned them and buried them. Every step of the way, every step since 2011 to 2019, and for God long, God knows how long, Syrian women were part of the journey. And I'm very proud to say that. But that journey came at a cost. And you've heard that cost through the quotations that I just mentioned. There was a price tag. So let us see, try and set the scene for this price tag. And when I was asked to give this presentation, I was asked whether I want to use PowerPoints or videos. And I honestly, not for you know, any lack of technical savviness, which, which I don't have, by the way, I decided not to put any videos. But what I decided to replace them with is quotes and stories that I will read out to you now. Because how can we talk about justice? How can we talk about accountability? How can we talk about holding perpetrators to account if we are not aware of the scene, if we are not aware of the scale of the scene, the type of violations we're talking about here, and how rape is really utilized as a weapon? Let me take, take you back to the report of the Commission of Inquiry in Syria, that, the UN Commission of Inquiry, that was established in 2011. And every six months, they produced a report. Sometimes they produce thematic reports, like the one I'm going to highlight a few bits from. And because the UN is a state institution made up of states, including the states that are very much the perpetrators of these crimes, they are held to an incredibly high standard. So everything that you will hear now has been scrutinized once, twice, went through all sorts of political correctness um, uh, you know, sifting, making sure that they try not to offend anyone because, you know, that the UN is a state institution, a state-centric institution. And they came up with this 30-page report after interviewing 454 victims, witnesses, and applied the highest standard of proof. Almost half of the report is dedicated to the breaches by the Syrian government. The rape that happens during house raids, the rape 
that happened at checkpoints, the rape that happened at detention facilities. That does not mean that the other half did not cover or that the, that, that report only focused on regime crimes. It didn't. They're by no means the only perpetrator. But what I found interesting in that report is that for a change, for the very first time that I've come across it, a UN entity actually says and puts figures and numbers and tries to, to put things into proportion of the scale, the, the scale and the severity of the crimes. And so when half of the report is dedicated to the regime, three or four pages are, uh, are directed towards certain armed groups, three or four pages towards ISIS, and the rest is for the applicable law, it is important to keep that context in mind. Because the most dangerous thing that we can all fall into is start using statements like, all parties to the conflict committed something. That does not mean that you know, all parties did not. But when we equate the big fish, the big perpetrators, with the small perpetrators, that's the first nail that we hammer into any sort of justice approach. Why? Because we're distorting the narrative. We're affecting the story. We're affecting the priorities. Yes, every single sexual violence, every sing uh, single sexual attack on any woman is unacceptable. And it's a crime. But unfortunately in Syria, due to the scale and the severity and how, how widespread these crimes are, we have no choice but to have to put things into perspectives. We fought long and hard in the early years for women and, uh, and men and, and every casualty for them not to be just numbers. We failed. And so it's at least when they're numbers, it's important to have this, the, that kind of perspective into account. And I'll get to the issues of narrative later on. And while I was reading the report to decide what I should pick to kind of reference, I thought it was quite ironic because usually we would use the word cherry pick. You know, usually you choose the best things out of the report to highlight to someone. Well, forgive me if I don't manage your expectations, because what I'm about to read to you is the worst, are the worst bits of the report. By worst, I don't mean in terms of drafting or in terms of the words used, but in terms of the crimes these words are supposed to cover. Paragraph 11. Survivors of sexual violence and defectors of the Syrian army link rape of women and girls during house raids to the arrest of men, with rape considered as a punishment for the rebellion and a way to deter opposition. Information gathered by the Commission shows that acts of sexual violence committed during house raids were not an isolated incident, but rather a part of a pattern observed countrywide. Paragraph 17. Sexual violence and killings rarely took place in parallel. Regularly, sorry. Sometimes I try to fix the words to make them a bit more positive. Women and girls who were raped often witnessed the killings of, the male of their male relatives. 
and in several instances, eyewitnesses recalled women and girls being killed after being raped. Women and girls who tried to resist sexual assault and those who tried to prevent it were severely beaten and killed. One woman recalled how in March 2012, she was dragged out of her home in an, in an area in Latakia by pro-government militia members and raped in the streets. Her brother-in-law was also killed when he tried to intervene. In another instance, a survivor of the Hola massacre that took place in May 2012 described how government forces entered her home and raped her daughter in front of her and her husband before shooting the daughter and the father. The mother, who you may think survived this, was then raped by two, by two soldiers. Paragraph 29. From the moment of arrest and throughout detention, many women and girls were subjected to different types of sexual violence, including rape, sexual torture, sexual abuse, humiliations, and most interviewees reported a combination of these. While in most cases the victims were adult women aged between 18 and 45, the commission also documented the rape of several girls, the youngest a nine-year-old, and sexual abuse and humiliation of elderly women. On occasion, pregnant women were also raped, including a woman who was seven months pregnant, and another in early stages of her pregnancy, who subsequently suffered a miscarriage. Paragraph 32. The most not notorious detention facility for such searches was the military security branch 215, where female detainees consistently described treatment by male officers. On arrival, women were stripped, stripped naked, often two or more at a time, in front of male officers in charge of their admissions. Detainees were then made to squat in front of the detention officials and other women, and a male officer inserted his fingers into their parts on the pretext of conducting a search. And that report did not just cover females, but also covered sexual violence against men. I couldn't get myself to go into any more details or to get you any more quotes. The report is available online. I would recommend... I actually don't know if I would recommend you, you read it, but if, you, if this is your interest and this is something that you want to do something about, then I think at least we should be able to get the courage to set the scene. Definitely not a recommended read in, in terms of the emotion turmoil that you will come across, but a recommended read to figure out what has been happening. So rape clearly has been used, has been used as a weapon of the conflict and not just against the victims themselves, but against those who care about them. In the Middle Eastern culture, men often see themselves as responsible for what, happened to the, for what happens to the women in their family. Yes, sometimes that gets out of hand and it's criticized, but in that context, the worst thing that you can ever do to a man in 
a Middle Eastern culture is to rape or sexually assault their female relatives. So not even did women in this case be victims themselves or be targeted themselves. They were degraded by the Syrian regime to an extent where they're being used as a tool to punish those who dare ask for fundamental rights. These are not my words. These are the words of non-Syrians, international lawyers who drafted these reports. Now that the scene is set, many of us would be thinking, well, justice must be served. How, how could this happen right in front of us? I mean, we grew up watching things on, on, on television and, and, and seeing this, th these horrible acts and, and promising ourselves, you know, these were the generations of our forefathers. We would not allow such a thing to happen during our life era. Never again, I think, was the hashtag or the quote that, that was used after Rwanda and Yugoslavia and all these conflicts. Well, it has happened again. And I'm not talking about the past. It's also happening now. The regime cells are still full, full of detained men and women. And we have absolutely no reason to believe that any of these acts have stopped. So yes, justice must be served. And in a training that I was actually delivering last week to a group of survivors, torture survivors, I would say 90% of the participants were women. And I do a lot of these trainings as part of my job, but that training was different. Every one of them was detained or had the loved one detained and went through the crimes that I just mentioned. And because I was one of the components of the training was transitional justice, whatever that means these days. And because I didn't want to deliver an academic approach to what transitional justice or what we're told, and let us look at Bosnia, and let us look at Yugoslavia, and let us look at Rwanda, and try and as much as possible to learn from these experiences, I wanted to hear their thoughts. Do I regret it now? Possibly. I asked them, what does justice mean to you? As a lawyer, as a Syrian lawyer, I sometimes, you know, get uh, away with my black letter law and get excited about the International Criminal Court and what can we do and let us look at the courts and tribunals. Always oh, good to be held in check. So I asked them, what does justice mean to you? What needs to happen in order for you to one night go to bed, rest your head on a pillow, and say, justice has been served. I stirred up a lot of emotions. Unintentionally, I must say. Almost all of them came back with one answer. And I gave them a day to think about this. Nothing. Nothing, no justice could be served upon us that we would restore what we lost. There is nothing that the international community can do 
that would get us fully satisfied that justice has been served. No one is going to give me any sort of reparations for the torture that I suffered. No one will be able to give me back the years that I lost. No one will be able to give me back my loved ones that I still don't know where they are. Unpacking some of these responses, which are clearly driven by experiences that they went through, some of them started saying, mumbling, accountability, holding perpetrators to account. So how does accountability look like in the Syrian situation at the moment? International law, unlike national law, requires the political will of states. There is no execu an executive power. It's the states that create the law, the states that breach the law, the states that enforce the law. And at the moment, there is no political will for justice to be served internationally. Because Syria is simply a proxy war. Just tools, just numbers. You know, we're all cards that are played. You, know, you get Syria, I get Crimea. You get Iran, I get Turkey. I get a couple of new deals of weapons. I get access to the Mediterranean Sea. You stop refugees, I create extremism. These are the contexts that where Syria gets mentioned. Cards. And when, we're to when we are talking about the Syrian regime, I always say that they're a party that does not play its cards. It creates its cards. Whenever when we're talking about detainees exchange, what they will do is go and detain more people in order for them to trade them. That's the kind of mentality that we're dealing with. So accountability is slow. It's political. And no, no matter how many Security Council resolutions there are, and there are many that talk specifically about the punishment of sexual violence, which are arguably binding upon all member states, just ink on paper, absolutely no execution. Some states, particularly European states, have taken on board and said, we understand that the international community is unable you know, to, to galvanize the political will that is needed, and so we'll take matters into our own hand. Germany is leading. They've already issued some arrest warrants against major criminals. They've listened to refugees, listened to victim statements. They said these crimes are not acceptable no matter where they've taken place whether in Germany or a thousand miles away. We had some glimpse of hope two years ago when the General Assembly of the United Nations created what is known as the IIIM mechanism to try and not just document cases, but to put cases together against certain perpetrators. Yet, still slow. And the problem is, is throughout these slow, repetitive processes, victims of sexual violence are victims once more, this time through good intentions. And what I mean by that 
is a lot of us, and I include myself in that, because of the lack of coordination between those who are working on justice and accountability, and because of the proliferation of actors that are interested in pursuing justice but not always work well together, they have caused a lot of re-traumatization to these victims. In order for me as a British lawyer to be able to get a proper witness statements, I need to go into considerable depth. Depth that I've omitted from the quotes that I've mentioned to you. And so when I need to go into considerable depth, I easily risk re-traumatizing the witness, which she may be happy to go through once, twice, but 10 times, 15 times. And with nothing happening with all the witness statements that we're collecting because of the lack of the political will, and with a lot of human rights actors not being able to manage the expectations of these sexual violence survivors, we're creating despair. We're creating disbelief. We're harming the justice cause. Some of the women mumbled accountability. Others said the narrative. The justice for me means a narrative that I could look back to, that the world would see and know what happened to us so that we can be the never again to the next crime, to the next atrocity. And yes, academically, in transitional justice, the right for victims to have their narrative remembered, truth, as they call it, is key of any sort of transitional um, uh, justice mechanism. Narrative exposure therapy in psychological terms. But do the victims of sexual violence in Syria even get that? Do they even get that their memory, for their memories, their own memories, to at least remember what happened to them? All of us, if we're being fed a certain narrative, we'll start to doubt. Our brains are powerful. You'd be surprised. You'd know that this paper is right here, but if all of you started telling me it's somewhere else over a period of time, and I'm no longer, I can no longer see the paper, I'll probably start doubting myself. And we see that in courts day in, day out. Especially when the type of crime that we're talking about is something that is highly traumatizing and something that you would never ever want to tap into again. It's something that you've closed, you don't want to remember, and here is this lawyer trying to get it out of you. And the perpetrators of these crimes did not even allow the victims the right to a narrative. Disinformation is the trendy word. I know what Trump uses. Fake news. Everyone calls fake news. And I just really find it astonishing. I think that's the best term to really describe it. Astonishing that I, left, I lived through an era where we did not have a lot of information. And so we did not know a lot. And so perpetrators got away with things. And now live in an era where we have a lot of information and perpetrators are still able to get away with their crimes. I find it astonishing that I lived through an era where the elderly, a 
accepted everything, did not ask any questions, and the, so the perpetrators were able to get away with their crimes, to an era where we question everything, and the perpetrators are still able to get, out of, to get away with this crime, with their crimes. How did we get to that? In my opinion, the perpetrators of these crimes moved strategically, I would say, from trying to hide their crimes to overloading the system. Let's flood the internet with information. Let's get our trolls, our bots, Twitter, social media, whatever we can, create so many fake articles that the ordinary person no longer knows what is happening. And that, ladies and gentlemen, destroys the hope for justice for the victims. When the narrative in Syria is being constrained, and I really need to stick to my table because otherwise I'll, I'll be wandering off, is linked only to a war on ISIS, a war on terror that we just a few days ago, the head of the, the, head of the operations said, you know, we've, we've defeated ISIS. But where those victims are raped by the regime, when we're seeing social media campaigns and, and, and electronic armies constantly working to flood the internet with propaganda to say this was all along a war on terror and hey, Syria is complicated, so you don't really know what's happening. And, and they try to constantly use these dis disinformation campaigns to tamper with the evidence, to tamper with what we're able to document, to, uh, to tamper with the own memory of the victims. This is where we know that everyone in this room can do something about it. Because at a time where a lot of us, or I speak for myself, a lot of Syrian activists said, you know, I shouldn't leave news and leave social media because that's not, you know, what, what, where the priority is because social media is social media. It's not important. And at a time where that was picked up by the perpetrators of these crimes, the importance was stressed. That this narrative game is a battlefield. In the same way as the courts and, and, and every other on the humanitarian battlefield, it's a front that we need to fight. And so, when Syria is presented in the news as a political problem, as a constitutional problem, you know, the Constitutional Committee, we're having difficulties forming the Constitutional Committee, we're having difficulties because the opposition are not accepting this or accepting that, and that's the narrative that we hear, and that's the narrative that different UN agencies and states contribute to. It makes it sound as if all these crimes that I just mentioned to you, and all these victims of torture, and the 400,000 people that died, died because of an article in the Constitution. It makes it sound when, when, you know, when, when the world political problem or a political solution is proposed for Syria, it makes it sound like Brexit. It makes it sound as if you know, the laborers could not agree with the conservatives and should we leave the EU or should we not? That's a political problem. Syria is not a political problem. 
It's a human rights problem. It's not a humanitarian problem either. The humanitarian situation is a consequence of the political actions, the military actions, the war criminals' actions to the uprising in, in beginning 2011. And so when that lady mentioned to me the, the, the importance of, of narrative, it's really something that I wanted to share with you today because it's not something that always, you know, often crosses our minds. But let me make things a little bit worse because I haven't done so already. Are the perpetrators being held to account? Slow. But what's going really fast is the re-legitimization of perpetrators. Let's reopen the embassies with Damascus. Let's establish economic ties. Let us get involved in reconstruction activities. It's fine. Assad won the war militarily. We have to deal with, you know, we have to bite the bullet, as someone once told me. We have to bite the bullet. We need to work with someone. You know, our companies, our contracts. Let us remove the sanctions because, you know, we need to get in there. The war is over. They've won. I don't know which war they're talking about. And how do you define winning and losing in such a situation? They may have won the military battle. But Syria, since 2011, was far more than that. Because it did not start as a military one. And so when you have initiatives that says, you know, we need to reconstruct the country because that will help us, let's link it to Europe. That would help us stop refugees coming to Europe. We need to reconstruct the country and re-engage with the military victor because that would help us return refugees from Europe. You know, a failed state requires reconstruction because we need to, um, you know, a failed state would uh, breed extremism, wouldn't it? You know, we need to uh, uh, pay the perpetrators, the government, and reconstruct the country because, you know, that would stop extremism. I hope you can detect the sarcasm in my tone. I'm not very good at it all the time. But no. Refugees did not leave because of an economic situation and will not return if you improve the economic situation. Some might, but the World Bank report that was issued in February, which I invite you to read, it's, it's a much, much less emotional read than the, than the first uh, document, clearly says that refugees, top, their top priority is human security. It's dignity. It's prevention of torture. And if you want to stop refugees from leaving Syria, your eye should be on Idlib. The place in Syria which has 2 million people at any, at any moment where a regime offensive may start will seek refuge. Turkey, and then Turkey, as it has before, will not be able to control things, will not control things. I'm not going to get into a political debate here, but they will, they will end up coming to Europe. And extremism? Forgive me, but I'd like to think, given the, the, the papers that I've read that were produced by high-quality think tanks and psychologists, that the best recipe for extremism is getting someone, raping them, harming their family, not giving them any option to survive, denying them justice, 
than rewarding the perpetrator. And if we're not careful about these narratives of reconstruction and easing of sanctioning and, and all these current debates that are happening in the Syrian context, the victims of those crimes so far in Syria has been, have been incredibly resilient in resisting any sort of thoughts that they may get that could be violent and have found numerous coping mechanisms to deal with. Don't make it more difficult. So I have been working on Syria for eight years. And I've just described to you the most gloomy situation. So what makes myself and a lot of Syrians continue the work that we're doing eight years on? And perhaps now it's time for me to give a message of hope. What gets me out of bed in the morning And what constantly motivates me, although, yes, I study something called, I study something called international law, and I may practice that, but seeing it breach on a daily basis would relatively increase your level of skepticism if, something, if, if there is something as international law that, that exists, even. Apologies to all of those of you who may have studied it. What gets me out of bed is that losing hope would only benefit one person, the perpetrator. They are depending on us losing hope. They are depending on us giving up, saying, what's the point of this? Why should I keep fighting for justice if it's all slow? And that's not something that I'm willing to give to them. And that's not something that my fellow Syrians are willing to give to them. Giving up only serves them. And so we have been working day and night on documenting, day and night on fighting. I always say that we may not be able to push an agenda of justice, but we may be able to sabotage an agenda of impunity. We may be able to make it difficult for the perpetrators, and that's my role. That's my duty as a Syrian. That's my duty as a lawyer, as a human rights defender, as I like to call myself sometimes. But we need to continue that fight. And I have faith that it will come. And when I speak to Syrian victims, particularly those who suffered the crimes of sexual violence, that justice will be served. It may not restore what has been taken. That is something that I accept as well. But does that mean I will make it worse? No. And what gives me hope is that eight years on, with the worst amount of crimes that have been taking place, and with Syria flooding the news and refugees coming all over to Europe, you still came here today. And as a Syrian, 
as a lawyer, I really would like to thank you. Because without you, without people caring about something that is still ongoing, and without people, at least when it comes to the narrative and disinformation campaigns, taking it upon themselves to at least learn what's happening and being, being able to understand what's going on and trying to push back, the battle would have been lost a long time ago. I don't know, protocol is usually that when a speaker is done with their speech, that there's the audience that claps. But it's me that would like to clap in gratitude for all of you that come today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.